until the last day. The topic of today's khutbah could generally be summed up as the, avoid, the avoidance of the forbidden. And the Imam began the khutbah by advising Muslims in general to turn back to Allah in repentance to be aware of what they have done which is in disobedience to Allah Allah is the one who can forgive all sins if we turn back to Him in sincere repentance and sins fundamentally represent the things which are displeasing to Allah the things which Allah has warned us away from either directly in the Quran or indirectly through his Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and it's very important for us to understand that what has been prohibited to us whether it is something uh, personal or something with regard to the society that whatever has been prohibited has been prohibited for our benefit Allah has not arbitrarily sought to make complications in our lives whereby He has made a certain aspect of our lives difficult and He has made a certain aspect easy in an arbitrary fashion no what has been prohibited Allah is most wise He knows the things which are harmful to us whether on a physical level whether on a family level in a community on a religious spiritual level he knows the things which are harmful to us and as such he has prohibited us from the various things which in one way or another will bring harm to us whether physically or spiritually socially or economically however harm or wherever harm exists we have been warned away from those things as the Prophet Muhammad has said that he did not leave anything which would take us away from Allah and send us to hell without warning us away from it. Everything which is harmful to us in any way, shape or form has been prohibited by Islam. And the Prophet made a general statement لا ضرر ولا ضرار that there should be, we should not do anything which is either harmful to ourselves or harmful to others. These are general statements. There are specific statements that the Prophet has also given and Allah has explained in the Quran specific statements which prohibit us from specific things. So we have two categories of prohibition. Those things which are specified and those things which are, which, which are included in general prohibitions. What the Imam went on to point out today, using a particular tradition attributed to the Prophet Muhammad by way of the companion Abu Hurairah which is collected in a collection of hadith known as Sunan al-Tirmidhi. However, this 
a particular hadith is one whose authenticity is in question due to some weakness in the chain of the narrators. However, as the Imam pointed out, there are other statements of the Prophet which are without a doubt accurate and which tend to strengthen this statement to support it in spite of the weakness which exists in the chain of narrators. This particular tradition has in it a number of forbidden things which would become a part and parcel of the Ummah, the practices of the Ummah at some point in the future which would represent part of the signs of the destruction of the Ummah and the coming of the last day. There were fifteen different points which were mentioned. And as I said, all of them refer to various acts which in some way harms the Muslims, either as individuals, as families, society, either economically or socially, either spiritually or physically. The first of those characteristics which would be a sign of the destruction of the Ummah was when the booty from war is taken and given only to the rich. When Muslims are engaged in jihad the properties which fall to them Allah has stated in the Quran that these properties should be divided up amongst the needy, the poor and the needy of the society some set aside for Allah and the Messenger however one of the signs of the destruction of the Ummah when the concept of jihad has been distorted it no longer represents an effort to raise the banner of Allah to establish the law of God on earth but when it becomes one of what we could call imperialistic expansion where a state is just expanding its borders to increase its power and to increase its wealth when the jihad is distorted into such a uh, state and what is taken, what will happen is that what is taken in the course of that fight, which may be called jihad, and it will go to the rich and the powerful. Because the intent was wrong. The intent was not for Allah, that it would not reach the people whom it should reach. A classical example of that is the recent Gulf War. Saddam Hussein declared this to be a jihad. And the wealth which he plundered from Kuwait, this didn't go to the average person in the street. It went to those rich and the powerful who are around him. 
it went into their palaces or their whatever. Because that was not a jihad. Though he claimed it to be a jihad, it was just an imperialistic expansion. He wanted to gain control over the oil uh, deposits that were in Kuwait. As simple as that. The second was that when a trust which is given is taken as a prize of war. A person gives you something to look after for them and you look at that as something you've captured like, like what you've captured in battle. It is not something that you look at as a responsibility it has been given to you as a trust. A responsibility. No, you look at it as something which you are lucky to get your hands on which you will use for your own personal uh, aggrandizement. Or you will act with that which has been given to you as trust as if it were your own spending from it freely. The examples of this is like the wealth of Muslims. You have in various societies, various countries, there is wealth there in this country. But the leadership takes this wealth, this wealth is in the hands of the leadership as a trust. Because wealth is a trust from Allah to man. And when we elect or we choose leaders amongst us, that wealth which belongs to us as a whole, which is in their hands for their administration, administration for the benefit of the society, this is a trust which is given by the people to that leadership. Now when that leadership uses that freely, as if it, was, it were its own, the wealth which belongs to the people is regarded as being the wealth of those leaders, which they can give out as they please, to whom they please. They can spend from as they wish. This is one of those signs. And this is something which I'm sure you all just reflecting on the various Muslim countries, countries where Muslims are the majority around the world, and we see what is happening to the wealth of the Muslims, you know, how it is being utilized. Is it being utilized for the benefit of the society as a whole? Benefit of Muslims who are needy, you know, whether they're in that country or in other countries? Or is it being used for the benefit of a particular ruling class. A set of people who are linked either by, you know, tribal relations, you know, or by political connections, or by whatever. This is the reality of our times. The third characteristic <coughs> was when zakah is given as if it were a fine. When zakah is given as if it were a fine. A person doesn't give zakah because he believes this is a religious duty on his part. Allah has commanded him to give the zakah. So he does so to purify himself, to purify his wealth, to remove from his own heart that love of the material world, you know, that obsessive love of the material world. He doesn't do so because that. He's doing so because it's like a fine somebody has imposed on him. He must give. So what happens when he gives? He's not giving with a good heart. He's giving because there is pressure on him to give. And so he won't give as he should. He will find some kind of loophole 
you know, either to give to people who shouldn't receive, like certain close relatives of his who are not eligible to receive from him, or he won't give the full amount that he should give. You know, because surely, if zakah were collected from the rich Muslim countries and distributed around the Muslim world today, we would be hard pressed to find a poor Muslim anywhere. A Muslim who is starving to death or, you know, I mean not to say they will be poor, because in every society they will be rich and poor, this is but what I mean is poor to the point where they are starving to death, they do not have enough to feed themselves, you know, the type of situation that exists in the Muslim world today would not exist if zakah were properly paid by the wealthy Muslims of the Muslim world. When it was in the time of Omar and Abu Bakr and Uthman, when they sought to find people to give zakat to, they, they couldn't find people who could receive zakat, who were eligible to receive zakat. And the Muslim Ummah was not richer at that time than it is now. This is a reality. When zakat is paid as it should be, this provides a welfare, social welfare system which guarantees for the members of the community their basic needs. It's not going to necessarily make them richer, that's it. And everybody's going to become rich, no. Because they will always be rich and poor. They have to be for the qualities of generosity to develop. Because you cannot be generous unless there is somebody who is in need who you have to give to. You know, who has less than you who you can help. So, this is amongst those signs. It is a sign, as I said, which is very prevalent today. The fourth sign was when people would seek the knowledge of the religion not for the sake of Allah. Not for the sake of the worship of Allah. They didn't go to seek knowledge they are seeking that knowledge in order to gain position in the society or to gain wealth, so it's either power or economics or as a point of pride, seeking it so they can have a certificate they'll put on their wall that says you know, he is doctor so and so. And this is something I know myself. I could see with my own eyes when I was studying in the Islamic University of Medina where there are Muslims from all over the Muslim world studying with me. And I remember very vividly in the first year when we sat exams for the Quran, for memorization of the Quran, they mixed fourth year students with first year students. It was a mixture. There would be the deaths were arranged, there was one student from the fourth year, then one from the first, one from the fourth, one from the first in order like this. And I found the individual sitting in front of me, I was in the first year. From the fourth year, ready to graduate. This is the examination for the Quran, the memorization of the Quran. He is turning 
to the one who is behind me from the fourth year and asking him the answers. Then the teachers, you know, the, who is there, the examiner, when his back is turned or when he's checking some other students, this one is turning over, trying to talk to the one behind me. What's the answer? How does the first start? I said to him, Brother, fear Allah. He says, None of your business. You have to fear Allah, this is the Quran. He said, mind your own business. And he was ready to fight me. Because I was trying to advise him, he should not be, this is a man who is now ready to graduate. In the college of Dawah and Usul al-Din, Dawah, you know, conveying Islam to others. What can this man convey? If he is prepared to cheat on his examination for the Qur'an. What can he convey to others? And beside me was another individual who, from the fourth year, who I noticed also he had one little Qur'an he was pulling out from his desk and looking at the verses and then writing it. And then I called the teacher. And so he hid it in his pocket. I called the teacher and said, This man is cheating. And the teacher came, he looked at the desk, he didn't see anything. Of course, he's not going to search him, you know. These were graduates from different Muslim countries, from here, from Egypt, from elsewhere, Pakistan, Israel. I'm not saying everybody was like that, but there were so many. And what even shocked me further, later when I was doing my examination in, in logic, they call mantiq, a very difficult subject in Arabic especially. Uh, after we had studied all year, you know, and the teacher, our professor, was giving us advice, you know, how to prepare ourselves for the examination and, you know, what to do, etc., etc. After giving the different points, he said, if your brother in the examination gets stuck, help him. I said, Ustaz, teacher, what do you mean by this? He said, you know, if, you know, your, your good friend, you know, he gets stuck, if he stuck for an answer, you should help him. I said, how is this? Isn't this cheating? He said, no, 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 no. You know, because when you study hard, uh, you know, you may get, when you go to examination, you get a mental block, you know, you forget the answer. But you already studied and you know it. It should help you. Here was the teacher himself, the professor himself, advising the students to help each other. This is the Islamic University of Medina. In the College of Dawah. So when we reach a state like this, and as I said, this is not the same, that is the situation of the whole university, all teachers would do this, no. Nor am I saying that all the students were involved in it, no. But there are enough to make one wonder. And sitting with these students and talking with them, you know, I found that many of them, if not the majority among them, did not come seeking the knowledge for the pleasure of Allah. They came because this was a means 
in their society to become, you know, in a position of authority or position of, of you know, she's recognized as what person you know, a person who is dependent upon is guaranteeing certain monies or They were coming from other intentions other than the pleasure of Allah. And this is why they could cheat on the Quran. In an examination of the Quran. Because their intention was not pure. It wasn't for Allah. And this is not unique to the Islamic University. I remember reading last year, they had riots in Dhaka, Bangladesh, Muslim country. Students were rioting for the right to cheat on their examinations. Muslim students were rioting because the administration was trying to stop them from cheating, you know, setting up different systems which would prevent them from cheating altogether. And their students rioted for the right to be able to cheat on their examinations. What is this? Our brother was adding that students who had tried to cheat on their exams were sentenced to 10 years in jail. But the point is, whatever the result, I mean, this is showing a mentality. It is showing a case where people are seeking knowledge, not for the pleasure of Allah. And of course, primarily, as the example I gave, the, the, the gravest danger is that of Islamic knowledge. However, all knowledge which is sought as a Muslim, whether we are seeking uh, to become a carpenter or a barber or a truck driver or whatever, whatever knowledge that we seek, it should be for the pleasure of Allah. That what, however we utilize the skills which Allah has blessed us with, it is for the pleasure of Allah in the sense that we do whatever we do in a way which is pleasing to Allah. This is what it means. Doing it for the pleasure of Allah means we're doing it in a way which is pleasing to Allah. You are driving a truck. It means you don't do anything in the course of your driving that truck which is displeasing to Allah when you do it that way that act that you're doing the driving of a truck becomes an act of worship of Allah that is the way Muslim lives his life utilizes the knowledge which Allah has given him the skills which Allah has given him or her the fifth and sixth point was when a man obeys his wife and mistreats his mother. When a man obeys his wife and mistreats his mother. The example he gave was like when a wife asked him to do something, he quickly goes to However, when his mother asked him to do something, it's a burden, you know, I have no time, I'm too busy or whatever. It's not to say if his wife asked him to do something, he shouldn't do it. But that he should not be so anxious to do whatever his wife asks and be so, you know, to mistreat his mother in such a fashion. To not be anxious to serve her. Because we know 
that you know the Prophet might emphasize to us that the parents have rights over us. We have a duty to them to serve them. They looked after us when we were young. We have a duty to look after them when they're old. And of course this concept of obeying one's wife, this can also go into other areas. The areas where, you know, with women's liberation, you know, this movement which has come out of the West, where the women now are put on a position where they're equal to men in the sense that, you know, they're equal partners, you know, they have just as much say as the man does. And so now you find women who will be commanding the men, who will become the heads of the families. The men are just doing whatever the women want them to do. You know, this kind of a situation, this is what Prophet warned of when they find the destruction, you know, that a people would not succeed who makes the woman their leader. This is the this is the sign of the emasculation of the man. It's not to say that a man, you know, he has to be, you know, what we call in the West macho, you know, he's got to be in a you know, he has to Everything is his wife uh, wants, he has to put her down because he has to show he's a man. No, of course this is nonsense. But authority is supposed to be in his hands. So you find, for example, situations where there are women in the society who need to be married for one reason or another. Whether they're divorced, husbands are killed in, in, in war or in accidents, whatever. You know, women who are growing up uh, didn't get a chance to get married because they were involved in studies or whatever and they're now, you know, in, in, in latter parts of their, their life difficult to get married and the only option left for these women is polygamy that another man will marry her who is already married to somebody else but his wife tells him, no way she may have him signed in the marriage contract that he's not going to marry anybody else here now she starts to dictate to him, he cannot even conceive, he, he think about the idea, but he just puts, he has to put it out of his mind, because he knows if his wife ever finds out that he was even thinking about it, he'd be in big trouble. There's a situation now where the men have become subservient to the women. What they may know to be right and correct Islamically, this needs to be done, etc., they can't do it for fear of the anger of their wives. This is an example. And of course, mistreatment of mothers, it can go beyond simply just uh, not uh, looking after or, or looking after whatever the mother asks. It could be putting women in old folks' homes, for example, like which is very common in the West. A woman, when the mother reaches a certain age, you know, then the, the children they put her in an old folks' home. This is mistreatment of the mothers. No mother, she gets all we have to look after. The eldest son, it is his responsibility to take her in, or whoever amongst the family is able, they take her in and look after her. The seventh and eighth point was when a man shares his secrets, his thoughts, his friendship with his close friends and ignores his father. He won't sit with his father, discuss his problems and 
you know, what's on his mind, what his goals are, what his thoughts are, so and so. He doesn't do this with his father. But he does this with his close friends. You know, in other words, the father's no value is given to the father. The father is just looked at as, you know, he's cast aside. Maybe he's put in an old person's home. Or he's just ignored. Any kind of advice he has to give it has no meaning, no value. You know. <coughs> this kind of an attitude towards the elders. See, this is a thing which is despised in Islam. Islam has always held up the elders, you know, put them on a very, you know, high stature, wherein we are obliged to seek advice from them, to benefit from their experiences, from their knowledge, and especially our own parents. And this is very, very vital because it, it, what, when you are not able to communicate with your father, you're, what you're looking at is the breakdown of the family. He is not able to, con to convey to you the knowledge, the experience of his life so that you can benefit from it and help your own children. No, you are doomed then to repeat his mistakes. This is the breakdown of the family. And your children will continue that breakdown till you find that they are rejecting you even whilst you are still relatively young. You're not an old man anymore but you try to talk to your child and he's just, you know, up in your face and, you know, who are you, you know? I can do what I want, this type of attitude. And it doesn't get better, it gets worse. So much so that you have, for example, like in the West, where parents, virtually, they're not allowed to hit their children. In the West, in America, if you hit your child with anything beyond your hand, or if you hit your child with your hand and it leaves a mark, a mark on that child, you can be put in jail. You can be put in jail for child abuse. So, of course, what does that do? When the child knows, you know, he's taught that in school, he sees it on television, it means that if daddy hits me, he's going to be in big trouble. You know? So this is the attitude, you know, you better not hit me, otherwise I'm going to call 911 or, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, so the... Uh, you know, parents are sort of put in a, in a position, you know, like a position of extreme weakness. Because we know, of course, Islam does not encourage abuse, you know, just striking and hitting people for no reason or cause. But the Prophet did say, teach your children the Salah when they're seven and hit them for it when they're ten. Hit them. If they're not, you know, going to the prayer section, we're allowed to hit them. And if we're allowed to hit them for Salah, you know, then the other things which are, you know, going to school or studies or whatever is, is even more so. So, but of course, I said, you know, this is with certain, within certain reason. You know, you, you're not, not just a, a striking out in a way to cause blood to flow and, you know, this type of blows, hitting, striking, punching, this type. No, of course, it's nothing like this. But, a hitting in a way wherein some pain is inflicted because it's the purpose of hitting. You know, and, and at the same time, uh, the person is aware of why they're being hit. If they're at an age where they can be given you know, a reasonable explanation, you have some kids at some ages, you just can't give them a reasonable explanation. The little kid who is two years old, he wants to stick his finger in the, in the socket, you know, the plug, where the electrical socket. I mean, he's not going to be able to, you explain to him, listen, you put it in electricity, well, your body might kill you, 
he doesn't understand it. He just wants to put his finger in. So you are, the only thing you can do is let him know that if he puts it in, he gets hit. If I see you trying to put your finger in there, you're going to get a hit. He can relate to that. He can understand that's pain. You know, if he does this, so he doesn't do it for fear of the pain. Because he's at that age when you can't explain to him. You know? And some people in order to try to uh, protect the children, what they do is they just block, try to block off all the sockets. They feel better than him, then they just block off all the sockets. But no. Because if you just block off all the sockets, it means you may go to visit somebody's house and he finds an empty socket and he goes to it. But no, and then everybody's blocking off the sockets. So he has to be taught in his own world that this is wrong. You don't do it. So that wherever he goes, he is reminded of this. You know? Uh, as I said, you know, of course, we have to realize this, you know, and uh, although in the modern uh, theory of child rearing, they try to emphasize this, you know, treating children as little adults, so you reason with them, you know, use other methods other than hitting them, but this approach which was uh, uh, proposed, you know, in the 50s by Dr. Spock and uh, others, he's sort of the leading proponent of it, and this is not Dr. Spock from uh, uh, the Enterprise Star Trek, but this is, this is an individual who was a medical doctor in the 50s who came to the forefront, you know, became quite famous for proposing these great ideas for child rearing which involved, you know, uh, not hitting kids, and this is what has led to this situation in the schools, for example, in America, where it is uh, teachers are not allowed to hit the children, the children, even the principal. Nobody is allowed to hit the children. You know, where you find a situation now in schools where, you know, the teachers can hardly control the children at all. Children are bringing weapons to school and killing the teachers. You know, because he didn't like the mark the guy gave him on the exam, he pulled out a 45 and takes out the teacher. And this is happening, and uh, we're joking and laughing about it, but it's real. It has happened every year, it is happening. And it's not getting less. Uh, sign number nine was when voices become loud in the masjid. When the masjid becomes like a market, marketplace, people are bringing in goods to sell. They're, you know, trading and buying and selling inside the masjid, which is prohibited in Islam. Prophet said, if you see somebody buying and selling in the masjid, Ask Allah to curse that sale. This is what we're supposed to do. We see somebody's bought goods to sell in the market, they're collecting money and selling and so forth. We say, Allah, please curse that sale. Because this is not what the market is for. The market is not for buying and selling. And of course, you know, the raising of voices, this involves, uh, whether it is whilst the khutbah is going on, people are chatting and talking. Or, Whilst, you know, Islamic talks are being given, instead of people listening and benefiting from the talk, people will have side conversations going on where their voices become so loud that the other people can't even hear the talk which is going on inside the masjid. Or it may reach a stage where, you know, people are actually shouting and fighting in the masjid. And this is something which has happened in various masjids I know, in various places in the world, you know, where people have gotten up and, you know, gotten into actual physical fights. Masses, raising voices and actually hitting. The tenth 
was when a tribe of people are led by the most sinful amongst them. When the tribe chooses as its leader the most sinful. Instead of choosing one who is the most virtuous, God-fearing, etc., to lead them, they choose the one who is the most sinful. Either because they themselves are sinful and sin has become a virtue, or because they fear that individual, he is powerful, and because of the military or whatever power that is behind him, they choose him for fear of his harm. So they choose him, though he is the most sinful amongst them. And this, we have plenty of examples historically, you know, of leaders over Muslim countries, you know, who are invo involved prior to their leadership or even during their leadership in the most sinful of acts. The eleventh point, very similar to it, is when the leader of the people is the worst amongst them, sort of further emphasis in the same concept, it goes beyond the tribe now to other people in general. And in a sense, you know, as it's been said, you know, people are led by what they deserve. You know, when we look around the Muslim world and we see the state of its leadership, this is a reflection of the state of the Islam of the people as a whole. Sure, we can point our fingers to the leaders and say, oh, listen, this person is corrupt, or this one is this, or this one is that, or whatever. But that person is in that position because of deficiencies in the Ummah itself. They are the ones who, due to their lack of practice of Islam, their deviation from the teachings of Islam, have allowed such a leadership to arise amongst them. So they are held responsible also. Allah will hold that leader, that corrupt leader, responsible. He'll have to answer the day of judgment. But the people will also have to answer for allowing that man to be amongst them. So the blame is also on the people. Because ultimately it is the people who determine their leadership. It is ultimately the people who determine their leadership. The twelfth point is when a man is treated nicely, he is given all of the amenities, you know, kindness, uh, service, etc., for fear of his heart. You know, in Islam, Prophet has said that one who fears Allah on the last day should be kind to his guests. This, this concept of karam or kindness in Islam you know, is elevated to a status of an act of worship. It's a part of faith. To be kind to guests. When the person comes to your home, you treat them kindly. You're eating a meal, you enjoy them, you encourage them to take part in your meal. Or you bring them something to eat or to drink or whatever. This is a, this is a part of the, the characteristics of a Muslim 
But at the same time, the Prophet ﷺ had said that we should not allow anyone to share our meal who is corrupt. You know, somebody who is a corrupt individual. We should not share our meal with such a person. We don't eat at their table, nor do we have the meeting at our table. This is basic principle in Islam, that the corrupt should be pushed aside. You know, society should not treat them nice and kindly, because this is only encouragement to them in their corruption. It doesn't mean you don't give them dawah. Of course you give them dawah. But you don't bring them into your home, you know, and share your meal, because it corrupts your meal. It takes a lot of barakah away from it. So you give them da'wah in other ways. But when a circumstance arises, when such a person comes to your house, because of the power that he has behind him, he can harm you. You are obliged to bring him in and smile and treat him nicely, feed him food, etc. For fear of the harm that he can do to you. And this is the state around the Muslim world today. The thirteenth point is when there appears amongst the Ummah singing women and musical instruments. And the Imam went into this in depth. Singing women meaning women who are, you know, performers, right? As we know them now today, performing on stage for men, singing in the musical instruments, the guitar and saxophone and you know, all these various musical instruments. When this appears amongst the people, it becomes a standard, you know, as it has today, where music is in the home, in the car, in the stores, the workplace, wherever you go, you know, there is music. This is a situation that has been described where it has become such a part of the society that people cannot conceive of a society without it people become so attached to it, they become addicted to it. And Islam hates any addiction except to the remembrance of Allah. Because the purpose of our creation is to worship Allah. So that is the only valid area that we should be addicted. We should be addicted to the worship of Allah. If we find ourselves not worshiping Allah, we feel something is wrong. We feel, you know, like we go into withdrawal. You know, we need to get to the masses, we need to do some righteous acts, we should feel that way. This is right, for the service of Allah, because that's why we were created. But for anything else in this life, to become addicted to it, is prohibited. Whether it is physical, or it is mental. Because when we are addicted to anything else in this material world, then in fact what has happened to us, is that, we are being drawn away from the remembrance of Allah. We seek refuge in other than Allah. So when we feel down, instead of turning to back to Allah, making prayer, you know, turning to Allah, asking Him to give us strength, etc., depending on Him to raise our spirits, to give us the drive, we turn on the radio, find a tape, you know, one tape that we like, we listen to it makes us feel up again, feeling nice. You know, so this is what this is the problem, isn't it? You know, this is what this is what music has become. It's a it's a source of solace for people. When they should be 
seeking solace in Allah. When Allah is the one who should be, by their contact with Allah, is the one who brings them back and strengthens them, they're doing it through the music. So the music, they are addicted to it. It becomes the thing with which they put their trust, their hopes. It's there in the music instead of being in Allah. And this is why it is prohibited in Islam. Because music is a very powerful tool of Satan to turn people away from the remembrance of Allah. And the Imam, just to emphasize the significance of this uh, issue concerning music, dangers of it, he quoted another hadith statement of the Prophet which can be found in Sahih Bukhari just so people might not think well okay this is this hadith we talked about there is something in its chain of narration so maybe it's not so authentic or whatever no there is in Sahih Bukhari in the chapter concerning drinks the hadith in which Prophet has said that one of the times in the last day was when people would make allowable permissible zina that is fornication and adultery Silk for men, musical instruments, and the drinking of alcohol. Calling these things by other than their names. Calling it by another name to give it some other uh, impression to the people. This is not what is being done, but in fact, it is what is being done. So, by making the musical instruments, the use of music, Western or Eastern, modern music that we know of. This has been linked with fornication and adultery, the drinking of alcohol. So it is something very severe. Uh, point number 14 that the Prophet was supposed to have uh, referred to as one of the signs was when the drinking of alcohol would become common. And this, of course, does not refer to what we may call the non-alcoholic beer because some people mistakenly have thought, well, this non-alcoholic beer, this is drinking now, people are making this alcohol uh, acceptable by calling it non-alcoholic you know, but in fact it's still beer you know, or maybe wine or whatever but they're calling it non-alcoholic so in fact we should be clear on this that any drink which is not of itself intoxicating no matter how much you drink it, it is not considered to be of the intoxicating drinks which are prohibited. Because in the Prophet time, they had a form of drink which is called Nabiz, which is a fermented drink, but it was not alcoholic. There was a form which became alcoholic. He allowed them to drink that which was not alcoholic and prohibited that which was alcoholic, meaning that which was intoxicating. Because if anything ferments, 
there is a portion of alcohol That process of fermentation is the process of formation of alcohol. You may find, you know, with modern instruments, a percentage of alcohol in yogurt. The yogurt is on the market, you're eating it, because it has gone through a process. And you will find, you know, maybe 0.000001%. But that does not make it an intoxicating substance. Because no matter how much yogurt you eat, you're not going to get high. You're not going to get intoxicated. So therefore the fact that they're, you know, on a very on a you know, due to the, the, the powerful instruments that we have today to detect what is chemically identified as alcohol, this does not automatically put the judgment on that thing as being Alcohol or intoxicating. You have to be clear on that. Intoxicating drinks which are prohibited or substances are those substances which if you take them in large amounts, they will intoxicate you. Though if you take them in small amounts, they may not. This is the general principle which Prophet gives. Whatever will intoxicate you, make you drunk, make you high, whatever, this is prohibited. Whether it is in small amounts or large amounts. But any substance which may contain chemically some of the properties which are essential in the alcoholic or intoxicating uh, substances, uh, such a a, uh, substance is not automatically considered intoxicating and thus prohibited, unless it may intoxicate you in large amounts. So what this is more referring to, you know, is a situation where we find ourselves uh, taking different substances which are being included now into medicines, etc., you know, yeah, different like thallium, etc. Different substances which are in fact intoxicating substances, which people may use the excuse that it is medicine to treat yourself with. But the Prophet has stated that Allah has not created a cure in the things which He has prohibited. That we should not treat our we should treat our sicknesses, but we should not treat ourselves with those things which are prohibited, with the intoxicating substance. It should not be a part of our method of treatment. There may come circumstances, of course, you know, of absolute necessity, where life is threatened, where doctors may be obliged to use such substances, but not on the scale that is being used today, where we just find medicines all over the place which are, you know, of intoxicating things. And when you take it, you become intoxicated, and it is accessible to the masses of people. The fifteenth point was when the latter generations of Muslims would curse the early generations. Cursing them meaning not necessarily that they would say that they were disbelievers or 
you know, call them sinners or whatever, which is what, for example, the Shiites, the main branch of the Shiites, they, for example, of Iran, etc., they curse the early generations of Muslims, they curse Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, they curse them, the majority of the Sahaba, they curse them, they consider them to be apostates. This is one form. But another way that it may be is by us saying, for example, that what that early generation did with Islam, this was suitable for their times. But it's not suitable for our times. You know, we need a new Islam. This kind of this attitude for Islam which was understood and practiced by the early generations of Muslims is not considered suitable for these modern times for the 20th century. Because, so, in doing that, what, the, what happens then is that uh, certain practices become allowable. Like dealing in interest, for example. So people you will see in Yusuf Ali's uh, commentary where, where the explained in the Surah Al-Baqarah where he was talking about the uh, prohibition of interest where he said that uh, he didn't believe that uh, what the Prophet Muhammad was prohibiting was the modern banking institutions which are understood today. No, he was prohibiting only a certain form which is no longer you know, present today in the various monetary transactions. So in doing so he was making allowable by his own personal opinion, he was making allowable something which was prohibited. And this is the argument used by most of the secular systems that rule the Muslim world today. When you listen to the arguments of the different rulers, why they don't want Islam to become the law of the land? Because it's not suitable. It's not suitable to these times. This is the basic argument. And of course, you know, the leadership coming out of America is the one telling them, yes, of course, it's not suitable. It's not suitable to these times. And they're just echoing these uh, thoughts. So by doing that, by looking at Islam as not being suitable to these times, they're in fact cursing that early generation. Because Prophet said that you should, we are supposed to, if you want to be correctly guided, we should hold on to his sunnah. And the sunnah or the way of that early generation of Muslims. Led by what was called the righteous caliphs. And he also said that the best of generations is my generation. Then those who come after them, then those who come after them. Telling us that Islam is practiced by those early generations is the best way. It's the model for us. We should take from them a benefit. So when we say it's not the best way, in fact it's not relevant to us today, we are, in a sense, cursing that early generation. Then the Imam closed off the first part of the khutbah by quoting the verse from the Quran, which, in which Allah said, we should fear a trial which will not affect only the sinful amongst you. 
and know that Allah is severe in retribution. اتقوا فتنة لا تصيبن الذين ظلموا منكم خاصة. It's a warning to us that it's not enough that we do right to be safe from the punishment of Allah. That if we allow those who are sinful to carry on with their sin, then Allah will send a punishment on us which will not just hit those who are sinful, it will hit the society as a whole and include everybody. So it is our duty, it's the duty of the Ummah to make itself right, beginning with the base and ending with the leadership. It is the duty of the Ummah to establish correct leadership and to establish Islam within its members. In the second part of the khutbah, the Imam then went on to mention part of that punishment which the Prophet predicted would overtake the peoples wherein these 15 characteristics had become common amongst them, where a red wind would come and destroy the people. Earthquakes would be constantly afflicting them and a portion of them would be transmuted into apes and pigs. And stones from the sky would rain on them, like what happened to the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. So these would be part of the trials and afflictions which would strike such peoples, wherein these various forms of disobedience had become a basic characteristics of the people. And of course, as he pointed out, when the Prophet warns us, tells us of the future, talking about these characteristics, it's a warning to us to try to do something about it, to try to change what we can while we can. It's also whenever the Prophet speaks about a negative characteristic, untrustworthiness, he's also reminding us of its opposite, trustworthiness. That whilst we strive to remove these qualities of untrustworthiness, very simple qualities, we strive to do so by developing their opposites, to be trustworthy. This is a characteristic which Muslims should hold. To give zakah from our hearts as an act of worship, seeking the pleasure of Allah, etc. So we should take from these warnings not only the dangers of these sinful acts, but a, a call to their opposite, to various acts of righteousness. And that basically summarizes the khutbah. 
wherein the Imam reminded us to avoid those things which have been prohibited by Allah and His Messenger because these things are harmful to us, fundamentally. Not to avoid them ritualistically, we just don't do it because it is part of the ritual of Islam. So you find somebody will say, or I've met people like this who will say, in America they've come over, they won't uh, eat pork, but they'll drink alcohol. You suggest to him to eat pork, he's very upset that he's got a glass of alcohol in the table. Because it's a ritual. I met people who told me, one brother from Morocco, he told me that there, he and I say a group of people, I can't say this is the case of every Moroccan, but I doubt it. But there, back in Morocco, they used to break their fast with marijuana. See, the fast was just a ritual. See, Islam, whenever it becomes ritualistic in its practice, whether in the things that we do or the things that we don't do, then we have lost sight of the purpose. We are not capable of benefiting from the spirit, from the goals of the various acts of worship and the goals of the various uh, prohibited areas. We're not able to benefit from them because we're dealing with them in a ritualistic fashion. We should always understand that whatever has been commanded of us, it is for our benefit. Whatever has been prohibited of us, it is for our benefit. And we should always approach what we do and what we don't do in this fashion, so that it becomes a source of enlightenment for us. It raises us spiritually, brings us closer to Allah, and increases us in righteousness. Uh, if there is anything anybody would like to add or comment on or uh, raise questions about now, inshallah, we're going to our section of uh, questioning. Oh. Okay, if nobody whilst you're thinking about something to say or whatever, I'll mention some uh, points which have been uh, raised to me. Uh, which should be reflected upon. Uh, those those um, brothers, for example, who have come here with their wives and they have small children. Children, you know, who are so small that, you know, it's not possible to keep them quiet, you know, in the course of, you know, such a long period of time, that to leave those children, for example, amongst the women, women who, you know, are in a very small and confined area where they're listening to the khutbah, etc., 
you know, when the children start to make noise, it's very difficult because they can't take the children out onto the street, whatever. You know, uh, the noise sometimes can become very disturbing, so much so that the people, women who are trying to listen to mm-hmm. the presentation or the khutbah, you know, they're not able to hear it properly. So I would advise, you know, the brothers, it's better these very small children know that they should take them themselves, you know, when the time for the uh, presentation comes or whatever, you know, after the khutbah, because up here, if a man, the child starts to make noise, he can step outside to avoid disturbance of everybody else, you know, much more easily than women uh, can. Anybody have any other questions or comments? Okay, but. Alaikum salam wa Well, you know, as we have pointed out, you know, on numerous occasions, we do not determine what is acceptable Islamically and what is not acceptable by what we find in the society. You know, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable is not determined by what we find in the society. Because people can disobey Allah. So we can find things in the society which are prohibited. So we don't use a particular society or circumstance to justify uh, a particular thing. For example, somebody may say, well, you know, when I went to Mecca, I found people smoking there. So how can you say that uh, they were selling cigarettes in the, in the, in the stores? I mean, how can you say that uh, it is prohibited in, in Islam to smoke cigarettes when they're selling it in Mecca? So you see, the point is that the fact that it is sold in Mecca does not make it allowable. If the leading scholars, for example, of Saudi Arabia, quite openly have stated and written, you know, extensive booklets, etc., you know, explaining the prohibition of cigarettes, use of smoke, smoking, etc. We have to go according to what the Prophet Muhammad said, what Allah said. This is the basis of what is right and what is wrong. Not what people do. So if we find music on television, we say, and we find the Prophet is prohibited, we say that the television is not functioning according to Islam. That's what we say. We don't say that there must be something wrong with what the Prophet said because it's on television. No. There must be something wrong with the way that the television is being used or the radio, or the media, or whatever. This is how what we use the Qur'an and the Sunnah as our guidelines to judge the society, to judge the people, to judge the practices. We don't use the society to judge Islam, what is right or wrong. These predicted signs? 
Well, the critique could find it, it, it's Muslims and non-Muslims. You know, but particularly Muslims. See, because many of these things are things which are common to non-Muslim societies. Many of these things are common to non-Muslim societies. So when it becomes really something serious is when it becomes common to the Muslim society. So I think primarily the Prophet is speaking about that situation amongst Muslims. But when it reaches that situation amongst Muslims, you can be sure that it reached that way amongst non-Muslims long before. The red wind, uh, which the Prophet spoke of, uh, is the exact meaning of it, Allah knows. The Prophet told us that a wind would come. And there are a number of other hadiths which refer to this wind coming, you know, which would like, be like a storm. And it was described as being red. Uh, it could be because the sand or the dust which is caught up in it is of a red color for one reason or another, you know, or a lot of us have to be. All we know is that this is how it has been described. When we see it, we'll know it. Another point which was raised was the uh, concerning the head covering for women, the dress code. Uh, in particular, the, the scarf, known as the khimar, that this should be worn at all times when a woman is in the presence of people who are not her direct relatives, father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter, you know, those whom she cannot marry. Outside of that, if she, at her workplace or elsewhere, is in contact with males, in particular, she should wear her head covering. Uh, this is something which was raised because of a misunderstanding on the part of some people, wherein the wearing of the head covering is like a costume or the Islamic dress is like a costume. People put it on when the time for prayer comes. This is something which I observed at one time when I lived in Malaysia, that uh, people, when they did there, in Indonesia also, it's quite common, that the women will carry a bag with them. Normally when they're walking around the society, they wear skirts which are short and tight, and their hair is out and everything. But when they're going to pray, they will carry a bag with this Islamic uh, dress, which they, when they get inside the door of the master, they put it on, where you can see nothing but their face. It goes right down, covers everything. So they put it on when they're inside the master, when they're coming out, they fold it back up again, put it in the bag, and they step back out. So, it's as if uh, they're obeying Allah in the master, but you know, Allah is not outside the master, so they know they have to go about the society. And this is not the way Islam is. System of dress, there is a purpose behind it. 
what's happened is that they're taking it as a ritual, as I said, the costume, as the, you know, in the West people dress up for Halloween, you know, you know, people have costumes that they put on for certain occasions, right? Easter Bunny, whatever, Easter Cup. Uh, people wearing these kind of costumes for these, uh, for these ritualistic uh, purposes, uh, for, for, for Islam, for Muslims to take the dress of Islam in that fashion, this is to deviate, to misunderstand the goals. Because the goal of a Muslim woman's dress is to maintain her modesty, to protect her from the harm of the society particularly the males in the society. Because the more a woman is exposed, the more she exposes herself, the more she becomes subject to harassment by the males in the society. No matter what society, whether it's a Muslim society or a non-Muslim society. And I know some people say, well, you know, it's in Saudi Arabia when these people are covered up all the time. You know, of course, there where a woman exposes herself, the men go crazy. But in our country, you know, everybody is exposed. So the men, they're not that, you know, crazy as the Arabians, you know, the Arabs. But no, this is not the case. We look at the West, particularly in America, we know that the number of reported rapes last year was over 100,000, and it's increasing. This is a society where you're free to do anything. You can purchase prostitutes, everything, it's all over. But yet, so many women are being raped, and it's more and more and more. Harassed in the job. You know, where women are getting, you know, equal rights, as they call it, you know, being to be able to join the army and the navy and the everything. But when they're joining these places, they're getting harassed. The men are attacking them left and right. And this is directly related to the dress of the American or Western woman. If you go back 70 years, if you look at the costume that the women used to wear when they went swimming, it's like a dress. Today, you can hardly see it. And we see a direct relationship. So, that dress of the Muslim woman is for her protection, to maintain her modesty. She covers her hair because the hair is a sign of beauty. Women are told that their hair is their crowning glory. You know, how much money is spent in beauty salons to put their hair this way, that way, and the other way? I mean, why? Because what, for what purpose? For the attraction. This is what it is about. So, women are enjoy to cover themselves for their own protection. And it's also protection for the society. Not to say that the men are weak, but, and that, you know, some people say, well, it's really the men's fault, and they should get more faith, and they should do this, and they should do that. Well, it's true, they need to do these things too. But, at the same time, Allah has put in our natures certain characteristics He has put between the male and female certain attractions. And this is why 
in the West when you want to sell a car, the best way is you put a model in or in a bikini sitting on top of the car. Why? What does that model in the bikini have to do with the car? I mean, you want to sell a car, technically speaking, you should be telling them the engine is this size and that, it does this, and it's what you, but no, what they do, they show the picture of the car, they put the picture of a woman, you know, lying on top of the car. They're telling you what, if you get this car, that's what you got to get. <laughs> Right? And everything, you know, virtually everything which is sold is sold in this fashion. Why? Because they know, they know the mentality of males. They have studied it. What can attract them? What is the most powerful thing that can draw them to buy this product? Connecting it with a female. This is real. So, Islam recognizing this natural attraction. And an attraction which always ends up to the, the detriment of women. Because when they reported this 100,000 rapes, how many of them were men? Not too many. The vast majority of rape cases is women being raped. So they're the ones who suffer as a result of this attraction. So Islam recognizing the, nat the natural uh, constitution or the natural relationship that is there and the need for the protection of the women has enjoined upon the women to dress in a particular fashion. Men are also enjoined to dress in a fashion which is not provocative, you know, wearing, I mean now very common in the West now, you see the um, runners, they're wearing these spray-on shorts, you know, it's just exposes their private parts, you know, these that they use for riding the bicycles, also same thing, skin tight, this type of dress. Of course, Islamically this is also prohibited. And this is something that we should keep in mind too when we, uh, if those of us who have televisions in our homes and uh, they're watching wrestling, you know, wearing wrestling, the, uh, these people are wearing these various costumes Posting their private parts. I mean, even Islamically, for a man to look at that is prohibited. Prophet said that man should not look at the thigh of another man, nor should a woman look at the thigh of another woman. So we have to be, you know, very careful what we do if we're not you know, disobeying uh, the principles of Islam in, in areas of dress, whether we are male or female.
that she actually is leading? No. The military or the major forces of the society in the background, they're the ones who are leading. And the head of the military is not a woman. So she will be there as a figurehead. You know, as the male may be there, as a figurehead in those kind of societies. The woman is not going to be in a position of real power where she, as a leader now, commands. No, she will be a puppet. For Muslims, for Muslims to be ruled by a woman, it is a dangerous situation. The Prophet warned us against it. So we would not choose as our leader a female. That's a general principle across the board. If you are in a non-Muslim society, you are a uh, minority, and you have two people clamoring for leadership of that non-Muslim society, a male who is known to be a butcher of Muslims, and a female who promises uh, some kind of uh, reasonable dealings with Muslims. Muslims may support the election of that female to avoid, as you said, the less taking the lesser of the two evils. That is in a minority circumstance, which is different from when Muslims are a majority. When Muslims are a majority, then they're choosing their own leadership. In the case where they're a minority, they're just trying to push away some of the harm which appears to be coming towards them. So in that kind of circumstance, it's different than because you're not really choosing this person as your leader, per se. Because the leadership of the country is not in the hands of Muslims. You're only trying to avoid, you know, a certain amount of harm which appears to be coming to that male individual. Okay, the first question actually you, you, you raised, I wasn't clear to me. It's a matter of family relations. A woman is more knowledgeable than a man. Oh, in matters of family, we talk about leadership again where a woman may be more knowledgeable in a given area than the man. What the man should do is to listen to her advice. Not that she now takes over the leadership of the home. Right? It's two different things, right? She, I mean, wherever she has knowledge in an area, it could not just be her, it could be the child also. He may have a son or a daughter who has certain knowledge of something which is, uh, which he has to make a decision in the home, and if he can benefit from the knowledge, he should do so. Because our general leadership in Islam is based on shura. This is what the law is commanded in the Quran that you know our affairs are judged by shura, by consultation. That is, we do not lead in a dictatorial fashion, where it's just I say, you say, you know, you just do, you know. No, you, you take advice from the people around you, whether it's in the society or in your own family. So if your your wife has knowledge and so on, you benefit from her knowledge. But I'm saying it's different from doing that and now, now turning over the authority to her.
Now, a question, if music is prohibited at all, how can there, uh, how can music being sung by male singers, specifically Arabic songs, uh, be shown on television? As I pointed out before, the, the issue of what we see on television is not an issue of right and wrong. Uh, once there are musical instruments accompanying a song, then that, those musical instruments, with the exception of this hand drum, called the duff, with the exception of that, these other musical instruments, wind and string, you know, violins, etc., all of these are haram. So whether there's a male singing it, or a female, or a child, or whatever, as long as it's accompanied by these kinds of background uh, music, it becomes prohibited. Question. Does the wife have the right to question or ask about the earnings of the husband? Especially if the wife does not hold any money at all. I can only assume from this question that the, the wife is, is referring to a wife you know, asking for some form of allowance or monies to, to do or take care of some of her needs if she has no money. Sure, if she has the right to do so. As a matter of fact, Prophet Muhammad you know, when uh, one of the female companions by the name of him came to him and asked uh, what she should do in the case where her husband was very stingy, would not give her enough money for her and a child, you know, whether it's okay for her to take some of his money without him knowing. And Prophet uh, said, take what is enough for yourself and your child. So he made that allowance for her in the case, you know, where the husband is stingy and not providing sufficiently for the family. Uh, if it's the question is referring to the, the type of earnings, that is, she finds her husband coming in with all kinds of money and doesn't seem to be related to his job, you know, that he might be involved with the haram, should she ask? Yes, of course. If she sees signs and things that may appear that show that her husband may be involving himself in haram dealings, you know, drug distribution or you know, something like this, he's getting money from sources which are, you know, just not uh, conceivable, then sure, she should ask. And she should try to prohibit him, stop him from doing it if he's involved in some form of haram. If, for example, he's even working in a place which is haram, so the type of job he's doing is a haram job, she should encourage him to give up such jobs, you know, and find a halal means of uh, earning a living for themselves. Because, uh, for example, if her husband works in an in a, uh, alcoholic producing factory, you know, he works in a factory which produces alcohol in the, in the West, you know, or some form of, some prohibited uh, substance or thing, you know, he, um, he works in the bank uh, in, in, in interest, you know, he signs contracts involving interest, etc. If he is involved in any kind of work which involves something which is prohibited by a law, then she should. It is her duty to encourage him to give up that work and to find other work. And, and she may have to do it from the point of view, for example, that they're used to living a very comfortable lifestyle. 
that this job provides them with a lot of money to live very comfortable. She does so by saying that I'm prepared to live, you know, at a poverty level, virtual poverty level. You know, just enough for us to eat and so and so, but the money you're earning is halal. I prefer that. Because obviously he may not want to give up the job because of fear that it would destroy his family, they would not be able to live at this stoke. So she contributes to that effort by showing her willingness, expressing her willingness you know, to, to live at the lower status, you know, uh, in order for him to avoid dealing in uh, working in a situation which is haram. Uh, question, alcoholic eating.